What's up, sis? I guess it was kind of a weird match, but uh, I guess he kind of proved the naysayers wrong. I think what Cronin has demonstrated here is that um, he knows exactly what an evil dead film should be. He strikes a balance between the horror and the comedy that hasn't been seen since the second film in the series. Evil Dead Rise sort of injects everything that this series needed to be reinvigorated. It's got a new unique setting. It has a tenuous connection to the older films that doesn't rely too much on nostalgia. It's got plenty of unique gore and characters. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Do you ever wish that she was dead? There's just boundless vision here, obviously. It's undeniable. And it takes the audience. You, it makes you think you're at the brink of transcendence. You're about to have some epiphany, like something amazing is going to happen to your worldview very soon. And then instead your head just gets shoved up Ari Aster's ass so he could fart even more directly, you know, into your respiratory system and, it, you know, eventually into your brain. Because, like, this movie's destined to divide. You know, like, it's going to stand apart from anything Aster made before it. It's going to, you know, stand apart from anything he makes after. Because I don't think he's going to be allowed to go as ham as he does here. Because he goes a little too hard in the paint. A lot about what this thing is exploring that is relatable. But does this make a good movie? Not really. It's not a narrative. This is just a nightmare. A drawn out, you know, you know, bad night at home after you ate too much right before you went to bed and watched Evil Dead Rise, you go to sleep with all of your, you know, fucked up shit rattling around in your brain. And if you're Ari Aster, this is what you wake up and poop out onto the page. to Theater and Stream, a film podcast. I am Matt, and that is Chuck, and this is episode five. We may be a couple weeks early, but today we're throwing our own Mother's Day <laughs> and talking all things motherhood. And to tackle such a big topic, we could only do a double episode. So we're bringing you twice the featured reviews in this one episode. First up, we've got Evil Dead Rise, it's all about the fears of becoming a first-time mom and the blood and guts that come along with that. Next up, we've got Bo is Afraid, where we'll talk about the domineering nature of some mothers and their Greek tragedy-esque ability to turn their boys into sniveling man-children. And of course, we've got the watch list, watch list which won't be left out, where we'll be discussing Amazon's adaptation of Dead Ringers. It's a show all about the miracle of childbirth uh, <laughs> that'll give you all the mucus plugs that you can handle. We've even got a little something for all the adoptive fathers out there 
where we'll discuss the finale of The Mandalorian. And as always, we're going to discuss the week's film news. We'll talk about the one non-film recommendation in the mentionable that we have. And we'll name our favorite film or show that we watched this week in Pick of the Week. Timestamps are in the episode description. Please like and subscribe if you like what you see. And rate the show on podcast services if you like what you hear. But anyway, that's the business end of the show. Chuck, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, because that's something that occurred to me as I was getting the show ready. It was just like, holy shit, everything's connected. Synchronicity <laughs> everywhere. It's all about the same thing. Um, but the, And I don't really you feel like this is a sign of homogeneity. You know, it's just, you know, everything just you know, slides together just perfectly. Um, and I, I don't know. This first news story we're going to talk about is kind of about mankind forcing, you know, some exerting some control over something that should be up to the muses, according to, you know, most people. Traditionally, that was the thought. But now we are headed towards, you know, a, the, the land of affirmation. We are getting the brave new world. The the dis diversity, inclusion, and equity rules are in place. I ordered them specifically that way because they initially rolled it out like this and then realized, oh, no, look what we're spelling. So now it's <laughs> D-E-I instead. But, yeah, this new cycle of the you know, for the 2024 Oscars is firmly in place. And the, that brings with it, you know, these requirements, essentially, that if you, you are a minority or a woman, if you have disabilities then guess what? You're probably going to get a lot more likely to get a job than before. You know, if you felt held back, the film Academy is coming in. The Academy of arts and sciences is coming in to right all those wrongs and bring us into the future. And there was a, an article, you know, like a, an opinion piece that I read recently that inspired me to put this on here, um, written by a, a gentleman named Michael Seafley. I've never heard of the guy. But he just seemed so gung-ho. It's like he was really boosting the idea that this would make everything right that is wrong, you know, in the industry and beyond. But how likely is that? And is it possible that this might, like we've talked about this before, but might this constrain creativity and artistic expression for, you know, business purposes? Um, you know, I, I gotta be honest here. I was, when I initially, you know, we first talked about this around the time that we did our Oscars episode this year, I was a little bit like clutching my pearls about this, but I kind of read more into this and it seems like these, um, requirements, I shouldn't even say requirements, but these guidelines are very easy to follow, like incredibly easy. And I think that's purposefully done that like, so they did that on purpose because, um, they knew that if they did it that way, that the Academy could just kind of poop this out and it would, you know, give themselves a pat on the back. And, but it's really nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what we're really looking at here is just to kind of give a sort of a, um, the cliff notes version of what this exactly is is it's it's four guidelines a through d and in order for a film to qualify for best picture that film needs to satisfy two of four of those guidelines and basically guideline a is for actors and it says you have to have a certain number of actors in your film from an underrepresented group and chuck already explained what what exactly an underrepresented group means but and then um, standard B focuses on people behind the camera, uh, and it's the same thing, underrepresented groups. Standard C focuses on the film's 
distribution. And then standard uh, D focuses on the marketing of the film. And it's all the same stuff. It's yeah. it's all underrepresented groups. And so uh, I guess the thing that a lot of studios are going to do with this, I don't know if you read through this, but it's all like incredibly easy shit to satisfy. Yes. And what, what I think like 90% of the studios are going to do is satisfy standard C and D. Yes. Because it's so easy. It's behind it's the like, camera. <laughs> yeah, it's well it's literally like hire two interns. Yes. And so you, you know, you can hire an intern intern for like pennies on the dollar and that's probably what they'll do or they'll create the like David Zaslav Equitable Film Fund and pretend yeah. that they have some sort of like you know, it's some sort of like um, film equity fund or something like that. And then the, that'll satisfy, you know, just that, that'll satisfy C. And then D, I mean, D is already satisfied in and of itself, because when you look at uh, status or you look at standard D, it's basically um, marketing and um, and like uh, design, like graphic design, that type of stuff for a film. And, you know, if we're being completely honest here, there is a lot of gay men and women in that field. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's easy as fuck to do this. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a whole lot of nothing. Did they give themselves an easy out? Yeah, because there, there was a lot of histrionics, you know, like there was like, like I have Bill Maher playing right now. And, you know, and his, you know, beef is well articulated. But yeah, we all were kind of maybe overlooking <clears throat> what was actually happening here and how shallow I guess it ultimately would prove to be from an activistic point of view, because they're really not giving anything up. Like, like uh, there was an article even from two years ago when this was first announced that I read that kind of like broke it down and, and you know, showed that there was only like maybe a handful of Best Picture winners, even like over like the last 30 years that would maybe get knocked off. You know, and that's only if they didn't satisfy those two random things behind the scenes that historically like they wouldn't have been in a position to do just because there wasn't enough people trying to break in let and, and most doors just kind of only being opened to, you know, like who, who was friends to a producer, you know? So like, I don't know, like you, you kind of forgive the fact that some of those maybe like are technically off because we have no way of knowing, you know, how progressive it was behind the scenes and the art department and so on. But yeah. The the one well, the one criticism of it you know does kind of stand to a degree, you know. Be, but they but they gave themselves an out because they made it possible for you to make something historically accurate, you know, without you know shoving a person of color into a place that they shouldn't be in. You know what I mean? Like we're gonna get to that very soon to you know, like yeah. in the next topic. But they make like if you don't want to be as like wackadoodle as like the BBC and Netflix can be, you don't have to be, because you can just find a way to make sure that underrepresented groups have a foothold and have a way to get a leg up, you know, going forward. So, yeah, we I'm glad we came back to it because as I also was going through it, I was like, hold on now, there this is really not only easy to do, but it's it's almost too easy. You know, like you, yeah, like there's no skin in the game to actually be progressive in this way. It is, and if you look, I I have a paragraph somewhere that I put in, into this like feed loop here, where it shows like who they're taking their cues from, and it literally is just you know getting their marching orders from corporations, other corporations, and from you know activistic nonprofits. 
So it's they're not even it's not even their ideas. They're just like look at all these cool people who we are bringing in as stakeholders into the conversation. So it's not even their ideas. You know, you know what I mean? They are just going to the activists and saying, "What do you what do we need to fucking do?" And then they, we will find the like least committed way to show that we are doing that. And I think that so I'm less mad at them because they didn't try, but I think everybody <laughs> should be mad at them just to a, to a degree for our, our own reasons. If you feel one way about it or another. Yeah. It's, it's the classic corporate thing of just not actually doing enough, just doing the easiest thing possible instead of something truly meaningful. But to I, at the same time, I do think something meaningful will come from this in terms of getting more people from these groups. Yeah. I think it will succeed. I think the people who are boosting this aren't wrong. Like people who like, can you imagine a, like a deaf person actually being, Hey, singled out? Like, are you vaguely interested in this field? Okay. Well, I'll teach you how to do a meat potatoes job, you know, and then become an executive someday, you know, instead of just being a sideshow act that the Academy's, you know, gives an Oscar to every once in a while. Cause yeah. So that's my, my feeling has evolved. I guess I could say. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And, and yeah, I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, there's probably going to be at least some good that comes from this. The other thing I did want to point out too, is like a lot of things, it does come back to money, you know, like how can we monetize this? And if you go on their page for this on their website at the very bottom, there's like a link, a hyperlink that you can click on that says like, diversity and inclusion resources. So you click on that and it brings you to a page of all of the different organizations and companies that you can hire on your own dollar exactly. that that will that'll that'll consult for your film. And at the very top of that list is a organization called Academy Gold, which is the Academy's own organization that specializes in stuff like this. So I mean it all kind of comes back to money. Um so you know I I wanted to put that out there too that you know, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts completely. And um, and then also, you know, there are still those specialized cases that these sort of rules are really like fucked up for. Like, if you are a super indie filmmaker who has aspirations of becoming a best picture winner, you can pretty much kiss those aspirations goodbye. Yeah. Because if you're making a film on a shoestring budget or like or not even a shoestring budget but let's say five million you can't hire these firms you know you can't afford to you can't afford you don't have a marketing department you don't have a pr department you can't satisfy options c and d because you don't even have those fucking departments on your movie and so it's like you know the people who get hurt from this most are going to be the small indie filmmakers and then also the people that are in places that, you know, that, you know, frankly, don't have very much diversity. I mean, let's be frank here, mm -hmm. like take, um, I don't know, Siberia. Like if you are an aspiring filmmaker in the middle of Siberia, you know, what are your options? You know, what, what are you going to do? And, yeah. um, or like Iceland, Greenland, um, Southern Australia, you know, what do those people do? I don't know. But, it's like um, in those other countries to the like to the credit of other nations around the world and how they spend tax dollars i would assume that the like the the film ministry 
of Norway will be on top of that if they feel like they have young talent worthy of it. But it does kind of gatekeep. It creates, it, it makes gatekeeping even, the gate's even you know higher. It's even harder to get noticed and get let in than ever before. You know, the, the, even before these rules came in place. But yeah, like I, I would be actually interested in trying to wrangle the the guys in Bismarck who are, they, they have like this, pseudo faith-based film company they just made a movie called the end of the rope about some about the last lynching in north dakota that occurred after this dude massacred a family and okay. it's like and it, i have would have to imagine but like like knowing some of the people involved in that and seeing the behind the scenes for it yeah that guy doesn't have a hope of getting any attention if meeting this rubric is like ha like has to be you know, met he he didn't even bother trying he worked with who was around him and who was willing and uh, you know unless you're going out of your way to be like hey yo black guy i need you to be in like x percentage of my film <laughs> then uh, yeah like you're th but then it's then it becomes a little obvious yeah but we also have to get into we kind of alluded to it but there's you're know, doing this kind of thing in a forced way that serves nobody. And Netflix is guilty of this in all kinds of directions, and it's not the only thing they're guilty of, because they are utterly committed to just embracing the wackadoo, the indefensible, and like the utterly incomprehensible, just for the sake of entertainment. Or like like what what is their thing? Because there is a like a lot of examples of them mm -hmm. just, you know, going with like giving a platform and a megaphone to a very loud voice, a very entertaining voice, but maybe not the most accurate or even factual. Yeah, so this kind of stems from a story this week that got a lot of coverage that Netflix released this trailer for Queen Cleopatra, which is a docudrama series that'll be half documentary and then half like reenactments. Yeah, they do these from, kinds uh, of things, like about Rome and whatnot. Yeah. And this is from uh, Jada Pinkett's, Pinkett Smith. And essentially what this docudrama alleges is that uh, Cleopatra was black. And, they're, and they, they make no bones about what they're trying to sell here. There is a, in this trailer that Chuck is showing now, there is a, there's a moment where a, a woman says um, something to the effect of, my grandma told me that, you know, I don't care what your teacher in school tells you. Cleopatra was a black woman. And it's just, it's like so obvious. And um, yeah, so people were naturally sort of pissed by this. I think they're all now being sued by a lawyer from Egypt about this. Yeah. Uh, Netflix is. And they actually had to disable the comments on the, the YouTube for the trailer because it was just turning into a really huge shitstorm, And then... If you have the uh, browser extension that shows YouTube dislikes, as I do, you can see that it's a like eight to one dislike to like ratio Holy on this video. Shit. Holy shit! So it's 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 pretty bad. And um, yeah, so they, they've Netflix has been getting a lot of press for this recently. That they make a lot of documentaries that have bad information or. Um, only like one side of the story where the filmmakers purposely ignore like phone calls or like interview requests from people of the opposing viewpoints. Like 
um, the Bob Ross documentary that was done by Melissa McCarthy and her husband, fucking Ben Falcone, popping up again here. Yeah. They they deliberately ignored phone calls from Bob Ross's estate for interview requests so that they could just get their side of the story out there. What? And then they, yeah, and then they and then they uh, printed on their documentary. We reached out to the Bob Ross estate and they declined to comment or they didn't return our calls. Okay. And so yeah. like they shouldn't be allowed to make anything ever again. Yeah, like like you nice. should lose all of your 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 cards for that one. Like what the fuck? Like it's mm -hmm. that's fucked up. It's pretty bad, yeah. And then there's stuff like the the Harry and Meghan documentary uses some footage that I guess is really misleading. I haven't seen that one, so I'm not I'm not 100% on that one. And then I want to talk about this Son of Sam documentary for a second cuz I haven't seen this and yeah. um you have, right? I have and I've and I okay. know very well the book that was written by the guy that they focus on in that uh Maury mm -hmm. Terry. I grew up like with my parents having a library in our basement and when insomnia would kick in, I would grab something off of there. And his pet theory was that there was multiple killers, that it was a national satanic, you know, like murder, you know, like cult. That was there was many sons of Sam, including some some individuals, one of whom wound up kill, like killing himself on the Minot Air Force Base in the 70s. Mm. But he also but it all gets undone. You know, whether, you know, it's you know, because he's absolutely, you know, wrong or because there's no way he can prove it. But the, the, the most egregious thing that the documentary does is they entertain all of his ideas as they tell the story of Maury Terry's life and how it all fell apart and how he died and how no one believed him because he was like a, a New York Daily News, you know, like a you know, writer during Son of Sam. And he was the one he was the contrarian. And ultimately, it ends with this the, the revelation that the because of DNA evidence, modern DNA stuff they were able to determine who had killed a woman from bismarck north dakota who got killed in the the chapel at stanford her name was arliss perry okay. and his thought was oh it obviously was part of the murder cult people but it wasn't it was just some guy who was a security guard on campus you know and it was like staged to look like that though so he took the bait like the the guy took a crucifix okay. sure. and like shoved it up her and like desecrated the altar but yeah, it all, yeah, and the, the, the very final frame of the documentary, they show the body camera footage of this dude getting arrested and killing himself so that he can't be arrested. Like in the modern day, just like, oh, by the way, Maury Terry was wrong. You know, like, <laughs> but then, but then, yeah. like, after you've watched like fucking hours of this thing, so like, I don't know, I haven't watched Ancient Aliens, which is probably the most egregious example of them, <laughs> yeah. you know, giving a mouthpiece to someone who is utterly you know uncredible but writes incredible you know like basically yeah like conspiracy nonsense like alternate like pseudo history historical readings of geology and you know blah -de blah and he's right about some things we are finding crazy this is graham hammock i'm talking about here he is right about some things there there is a lot of evidence being discovered with lidar technology in the amazon of these massive constructs and these things that we think are mountains that are actually, you know, like, you know, grown over habitations that you know, were too advanced for our historical understanding that we have now. But yeah, it's, we, we are, there is mysteries out there and he's tapping into 
these small little things that are being adjusted and then saying these massive things are true. And then they're not talking to actual scientists, you know, because obviously because the, the ones who talk to actual scientists don't get the ratings that Graham Hancock projects do. Yeah. And that's, you know, that you bring up a good point because what that's what Netflix is trading in with all of these documentaries. They're trading in like entertainment versus like actual like learning and if they were to actually present you know all of the facts or they were to present the you know the more boring details it would probably look something more similar to like a uh 90s history channel tv yeah. show before before the history t- channel turned to shit it would you know something more dry something a little bit more boring so i mean they're 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 trading in this stuff for a reason because it people actually like think it's exciting and you know they want to watch it and they want to believe that it's real and and so i don't know i guess the the big question is you know like what do we do about it like or like what <laughs> what can you do what, uh, people are gonna watch the thing that looks the most fun you know yeah yeah at this point no one is going oh this scene like some people are going oh that looks informative i think i'm gonna learn something interesting more people are going i want to learn something wild that is more appealing mm-hmm. And for some people, like with Jada Pinkett Smith, they will click on the thing that reflects them. And I, I don't know. And and like the BBC does this. They'll make Anne Boleyn black just for the, the sake of a headline, you know, maybe a boost in the viewership. But Jada Pinkett Smith actually believes this yeah. you know, thing to be true. Mm-hmm. It's like Santa Claus. Some of these historical figures are are really removed from who they actually were. And it's yeah, it's like we it's like the whole we was Kang's movement that that Hotep bullshit. It's just getting mainstreamed by her, but I'm glad it's getting rebuked. But it does the, like there's just too many things that people have just gotten away with saying on these larger platforms. I would expect this shit in the bowels of YouTube or on Rumble or you know or like Live Leak, but not coming to be direct from the the people who created the modern streaming paradigm as we know it like that that's a little egregious but you can't hold them accountable if you're still subscribed well i mean yeah and here's i guess this would be my advice to anybody you know who watches these things i personally i don't really watch these these netflix documentaries anymore but i mean this can go for any documentary the second that you are done watching one of these things pull out your phone, go to Google and just Google search. What did, you know, what did this documentary get wrong? Or what did documentary X not say? Or like, what, what is the, or like, what is the argument for documentary? You know, just search for the conflicting information yeah. as to what was just presented and then form an opinion because uh, that's kind of what I've gotten into the habit of doing. Um, like I watched the, I didn't never talked about it on here, but I watched the uh, HBO doc Navalny. About oh yeah, I, I, I watched guy. I watched that as well. Yeah, and so you know, immediately when I was done with that, I just went on my phone and I said, you know, because I don't know, he's portrayed as such like a saint in that movie, and I so I immediately went and like seek, you know, was seeking out more information about the guy, and you know, he's got some skeletons in his closet, and a lot more than that documentary would want you to believe, and yeah. so um yeah just do that that would be my advice to anyone i had to do that with that woody allen thing that kirby dick did because mm-hmm. like i i don't know i like not that i am like a woody allen supporter or anything but 
Oh God, what what the heck is the the, the mother's name? His ex his ex girlfriend, is it Mia Farrow? Mia Farrow. That woman is a psycho, and yeah, she and, <laughs> and and the and the fact that Kirby Dick never tapped into that because he's buying into just the listen and believe philosophy. Like I, I totally believe that something happened with that child and Woody Allen, but it could also be true that this woman is psychotic and shouldn't be allowed to adopt, you know, children from you know poor countries anymore. You know, like mm. at a certain point, even, no matter how rich you are, I, I think people should just stop letting rich crazy ladies adopt children. It, it needs to stop. They're like they, they just don't treat them well. But I'll, I'll get off my soapbox so we can move <laughs> on to what's more important to people going forward which is how do we actually feel about the mandalorian now that it has basically ended the the first phase of its existence and this third season matt very uneven it goes without saying we've already we won't belabor the things we you know like really didn't like but where did this season end for you did it did it adjust itself did it land on its feet at the end or did it leave you wanting and questioning why? Yeah. Oh man, I I thought this season was largely terrible. Like I, um, yeah, I thought it was very bad. And I don't know. I feel like it feels like a series of bad decisions. They've kind of stripped everything that made the first two seasons good out of this. Like this sort of the sort of neo western style. The um, the sort of themes of faith versus family that's all gone mm -hmm. um you know they've turned it into like a series of video game side quests and like with complete non sequitur episodes that are just like one episode we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do this for two episodes and then we're gonna do and then and then oh the actual story of the season is gonna show up in the last three or so episodes you know the actual like meat of the story and so yeah it's just it's it was awful i thought like as a whole like mm -hmm. i thought this was really bad there's some cool like shots you know and some like sequences that are kind of neat i suppose but, yeah i agree with you it it objectively fucking terrible when you compare it to those first two because it just mm -hmm. became instead of being the mandalorian which was a brand almost unto itself even better than star wars at, at, at large more people were excited about the mandalorian itself you know star wars had diminished that much you know, you know in this time period and now they have just made it another star wars show it is just they what yeah they they blew it up they slapped it back together and then but instead of making an actual story they just turned it into a bunch of launching pads for other projects and you know, and and one of those projects is the the sequel trilogy, that you know is it, you know itself. They need to somehow, you know, fork Mando into mattering for that thing's sake, because apparently everything that was happening in Mando was all about resurrecting. It's the somehow Palpatine returned. The, the, now that's what Mandalorian is ultimately about. Yeah, it's oh gosh, it's. It, it was so it's just so bad and like you know you i think you tossed us out the last time we talked about this when we talked about the season opener that the the idea that the book of boba fett really like fucked this show up and i you know i think you're really you were really right about that because i think it's pretty clear now what happened was 
I don't know if it was because of the pandemic, but basically they took what was supposed to be the first half of this season three and they jammed it into the middle of the Book of Boba Fett. And then they... That's why, like, the first half of this season three is so, like, just, like, pointless. Like, nothing happens or nothing consequential happens. And then suddenly the back half, everything consequential happens. And it, it just feels like you should be watching that that mandalorian arc from book of boba fett and then just immediately segue into the second half of this if of this season and i don't know they just really screwed themselves there by doing that because that's that's what should that's what this season should have been and if yeah because they clearly even took some ideas that were supposed to be for the continued adventures of mando and baby grogu you know, and just put them in this third season. Like, that whole bullshit with Jack Black and Lizzo makes so much fucking sense <laughs> now because it basically was the pilot for the new show that we're going to get, which I really am not excited for. Like, th this last season could have just been, like, eight episodes of Mando just sitting on his porch watching the sunset while Grogu chases frogs, and that would have been better than what they did. Better, better use of money. Better use of everyone's yeah. time. Like, just have a really long screensaver and turn it into an art installation and have it be, like, this big statement about, like, now the warrior rests. You know, like, let's do something like that. But, yeah, but this is just selling action figures, basically. They're just trying desperately to take all of Dave Filoni's cast-offs from, they're elevating his animation shit so that it can be, you know, mainlined in a way. And then they're taking all of the stuff that Kathleen Kennedy was too fucking good for that don't involve Luke, Leia, and Han, and they're just going to, you know, jury rig them into whatever the fuck they're going to be doing with Star Wars from now on. That's why we're getting Thrawn. I know we're happy that the bo the blue boy is here, but it's gonna not going to be the same. It's just not going to be right because the people who should be in, in these fucking stories are either, you know, dead in real life or are definitely dead in the universe. And they've and and now they've let Palpatine, his descendants, take over the Skywalker name. So there are no Skywalkers left, and mm -hmm. and now they like they're trying to sell us all this other stuff. It's kind of like what we you know grew up with, and all the nostalgia is still there as before, but it, it's it's all just you know you know talk about you know, you know puppets on strings. That's it's just, they're just there's skin suiting Star Wars to such an extent that I can't. <laughs> look at it without seeing the the insect underneath yeah well and you know they're, they're they're gonna make the they're making the exact same mistake that they did with book of boba fett in this show yeah and i don't see how they're doing that because what they're doing now is they're saying just like they did with boba fett they're saying all this thrawn guys come in for the continuing adventures of Admiral Thrawn, go watch Ahsoka, you know, just like they did with this show and Boba Fett. They're making the exact same mistake that they that they made before. And I don't see how they don't see that, you know? Like, I'm sure Ahsoka's probably going to be good. I, I do think that a lot of what made this season a lot worse than the first two was Dave Filoni's um, assumed uh, absence from this show because he's off doing Ahsoka. Oh. And so this... 
this is just the this at this point this is just the John Favreau show. I think I think Filoni did like one episode this season, and he's off you know doing his Ahsoka because he wants to do his characters. He doesn't fucking care about uh-huh. Mandalorian. He wants to you know he wants to do his Rebels characters, and so well, what's wrong with Favreau? That like why does he fucking up so bad? Was it because he knew that he wasn't gonna get elevated up? He wasn't gonna become a, an exec. As it were, he's he's still just a, a lame hired gun, and they weren't gonna let him be anything else. So he just quit trying. Is that what it is? I don't know. It could be. I mean, I think he probably had like, I mean, this show became way bigger than anybody thought it was going to. I think, and he probably had like two seasons worth of really good stories, and now he's sort of running on fumes. Probably, mm. it would be my guess. And. Yeah, it's just like, it doesn't seem like the people who were involved in this show or were interested in doing this show are no longer interested in doing it. Because even look at like um, Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal was off doing The Last of Us when this show was filming. And I want to point something out to people if they don't realize it, but... Um, there were two, there are two actors that appear in the credits for every Mandalorian episode this season, and their names are Latif Crowder and Brendan Wayne. And those two guys are the stand-ins for Pedro Pascal, who have now been elevated to leading star roles in the credits because Pedro Pascal is not in the suit for a second of this season. I, I guarantee it. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but I guarantee that Pedro Pascal did all of his voiceover shit. He never showed his face once this season, yep. and he he wasn't he wasn't in the suit for a second. And so, not even on yeah, set like, for a second. Yeah, he wasn't on yeah. set for a second. He did all of his voiceover stuff distanced. I bet. And yeah, it's just like nobody nobody that cared about this show cares about it any longer that's what i mean like that final shot that i was you know know, gushing about because it's like the one thing i really loved about it they didn't they couldn't even get him on set to pop his helmet and just like crack a cold one yeah you know that would have been awesome why couldn't they do that she got it because joel's a pretty busy guy you know he keeps me here keeps (laughs) me there yeah it's utterly disappointing when you get down to it we will always have those first two seasons but it's it's just like why why can't disney ever just let anything good be good like like why does it always have to eventually get twisted into you know you know pretzels trying to fulfill so many fucking obligations those first two seasons worked because they sang their own fucking song within the star wars symphony and the, everyone was just you know digging their contribution a little a bit too much because it, now it just sounds too much like the sloppy hole that we all have been getting. There's, it's no longer a juicy morsel in the stew. Now it's just you know bland mush, just like everything else. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, too bad. I'll tell you what isn't bland though. What's like spicy? You know, incendiary. In <laughs> fact, is it's a, for a remake and a reboot for crying out loud. But Amazon is giving us a new take for the 21st century. On Dead Ringers, you know, the David Cronenberg film starring Jeremy Irons. This is, you know, has Rachel Weiss playing a dual role, you know, as Beverly and Elliot, two you know, radical gynecologists and obstetricians who are going to save the world and save, you know, your womanhood from pregnancy. But pretty fucked up. 
in these first two episodes. I'll just say that. Not for the faint of heart. It got me ready for, you know, childbirth, you know, that I'm going to be experiencing in a few months. This was the wrong week for, for me, man. <laughs> like, I got fucked up two ways to Sunday by everything that we watched. But what did you think about this? Like, were you excited going in or were you trepidatious? Yeah, I was, I was looking forward to this. I mean, mainly because of who's involved with this show. Um, the first two episodes are from Sean Durkin, the director of one of my favorite films of uh, 2019, The Nest. And so I was totally down for, for you know, the next thing that he does. And so, um, and then also I think Karen Kusama is involved in this show uh, in some aspects too. And so I'm looking forward to those episodes, but I haven't I haven't seen any of those yet, but yeah, I, I've also seen the first two episodes, and yeah, what what you have here is two very very different episodes of a show because the first is sort of like a crash course in like the day in the life of a busy New York uh, public hospital uh, maternity ward, I guess, and yeah, pretty pretty intense like childbirth scenes and all the complications that could come along with that. And, um, you know, it kind of gets you ready for the show. It kind of like locks you in. And, um, but yeah, this is an interesting take because, you know, I don't know if you've seen the Cronenberg, um, movie, but this show sort of swaps all of the like mutant women and like obsession with gynecological tools with, a sort of like feminist bent a little bit and more of a focus on, um, you know, they're putting the sci-fi stuff kind of in the background. I mean, it's still going on. You have like the test tube babies and stuff, but, but it's, it's more rooted in reality, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it actually is confronting, you know, very, you know, real problems. And yeah, I don't know, as, as the, the, the female versions of these characters, I find much more interesting than the male ones from the original one. Yeah, I don't know. Like the 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 whole like the the, the storyline that's introduced is one of the sisters is desperately trying to get pregnant and is miscarrying all the time, and that's partially what's fueling all of their weird little sex games where they'll like lure dudes in with the more with the more outgoing sister to fuck the other one, you know, like or the, he's she's even like just like like fucking them to collect their sperm basically so that she could take the embryos and make a lab baby but then at the same time it can't help itself because the second episode is just a, a giant like look at how fucked up and awful rich people are yeah. but it, it but it's still it still is entertaining but like the the big freak out she has after that like weird like game that they play it was it was just like oh wow like why are we being so on the nose about this? And why is this yeah. the thing that wins, you know, this, this uh, Jennifer L though, my God, she's wonderful as yeah, like, awesome. the, as that, the rich billionaire chick with the, the wife. And it, to keep talking on the cast, the woman who plays Jennifer L's like fourth wife, mm. she was in the yeah. deuce and she recently made some comments about how she hasn't been able to find work after being on HBO's The Deuce. And I'm like, well, girl, you're, you're here now. Why are you acting like you can't get hired? This is a pretty fucking good gig, you know, from what I could tell. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the yeah, as you alluded to, the second episode is a very different beast than the first. I actually, I really enjoyed that. I I, I hate to compare everything to Succession, but I think it's, it's appropriate in this case because 
it's very similar. I mean, it's it's succession, but if it were about the like Sackler family rather than the um, um, what's their name, the Madoffs, right? The Murdochs. The Murdochs. The Murdochs. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's like, and also, I mean, if you look at the writers for this show, the the there's a lot of them. There's I think like six or seven writers on the show, but the three main ones are all Succession alumni. They're okay. All who wrote so. I mean, there's a reason why this second episode is like the way it is. And so, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it on a whole. Like, I loved all the stuff when they were talking about like tree panning. Yeah. Stalls and like. Oh, they all um, fold their hair down so you can, you know, check it out. Yeah. And like the, 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 the children singing like Coldplay songs, like the, the little, how they had the, all like the blonde, like Ubermensch children singing the Coldplay and it was just so weird and it's like so like heightened reality and I that's what I like about it but yes I agree with you that uh both of the speeches in both episodes they're the one at the dinner in the first episode um and then the other one in the second episode where they finally convince Jennifer Yield to come on board they were just a bit too like you know yes queenified for me you know just a little too like they were very on the nose but that, all that said, Rachel Vice is fucking killing it. I love her. You know, like the, the, the both of the sisters are identifiable in just the way that she's putting like the like the expressions on her face, the like the weird lilt that they have to their voices are distinct. And but there's just so many like weird things that still aren't explained. Like who is the the like the Chinese hand servant that they have who like takes care of their stuff and why is she collecting used tampons? Well, I thought it was for, um, I initially thought that she was doing that because that's what they were taking, um, the one, the less outgoing twins, like, uh, genetic material from or something Okay. like that. Yeah. I, I guess I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent on that. That would but make sense. In, yeah. At the end of the second episode, you're almost led to believe that she's sort of playing her own game with against both of them i don't know what she's doing but she's doing something like to her own ends i believe okay. i don't know that for sure but Very, yeah because she's just there when like you know, like when like at, like after everybody wakes up when you know one morning and mm -hmm. some and another character is like wait, wait a minute who are you like are you the maid and she's like yeah i'm the maid like all sarcastically so it's really <laughs> unclear who she is and what she does but you know she gets them their ubers and and whatnot but i don't know the yeah elliot and beverly they have the same names as the characters from the original movie too which which is fascinating oh, yeah. to me but god yeah where this show is going i have no you know clue like it, it, it reminds me of severance because we're doing like bleeding edge really like like you know strange sort of corporate elite you know technological advancement stuff but these two characters are so alien around everyone like normal humans you know the the elite humans it doesn't matter who they're they're paired with they just are so they're strange creatures and i want to know like what the, what the show is going to identify you know as like the, as like the fuel what, what is the source of their strangeness because in the original movie it's all about like drug addiction and obsession and stuff like that so it, it's it's hard to say you know exactly where this is going to be going but I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah, same, exact same. I, I'm definitely going to be uh, continuing, and I would highly recommend people do the same because it's, 
I don't know. I just feel like a show like this isn't getting a lot of uh, uh, press out there, especially on a week like this week when you have all these giant movies taking the spotlight. Um, and but, they and they yeah. postponed like releasing stuff about this. You know, you know, recently like the the hype got diminished because of its violent subject matter and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Because there was like there was one of the school shootings. Like you, know, Amazon publicly were like, "We're not going to put out a red band trailer today," you know, for right. for, for dead yeah. ringers. Oh, because yeah, blood—that's another thing. Like you, know, like blood—you know, comes with you know childbirth. You know, you need it to live, and you get your first blood from your mommy, which is you know why we're going to be heading into our you know unofficial Mother's Day review section. You know, it's even more on point because we have Evil Dead Rises which is the latest in that classic franchise of horror. Matt, take it away. Yeah, so uh, Evil Dead Rise. Um, When Lee Cronin was announced as the director for this next entry in the Evil Dead franchise, it was kind of a bit of a head-scratcher for me. Um, He was the director of the very subdued, the very quiet horror film, The Hole in the Ground, Um, and he was going to head up quite possibly one of the most balls-to-the-wall horror series out there. I guess it was kind of a weird match, but uh, I guess he kind of proved the naysayers wrong. I think what Cronin has demonstrated here is that um, he knows exactly what an Evil Dead film should be. He strikes a balance between the horror and the comedy that hasn't been seen since the second film in the series. When you take something like Army of Darkness, while it's fun, it hews a little too close to the goofy camp and dispenses almost entirely with the horror of the previous films. And then you take the 2013 remake that was headed up by the underrated Fede Alvarez, which proved to be way too much for some people. Um, It was deathly serious, and it was straight out of the early 2010s, having more in common with films like Saw or Hostel than it did any of the other Evil Dead films. Um, But a decade removed from that film, uh, Evil Dead Rise sort of injects everything that this series needed to be reinvigorated. It's got a new unique setting. It has a tenuous connection to the older films that doesn't rely too much on nostalgia. It's got plenty of unique gore and characters Um, I'm kind of reminded of the recent Hellraiser reboot that we just talked about recently um, because it's a film that did the exact same thing as this one did. Similar to that film, at the end of the day, I suppose they're both fairly standard horror fare that don't really do that much to push the needle on the genre, but I think that's really all you need when your, your franchise is on such life support. So that's kind of where I sit with the film. Uh, What about you, Chuck? Yeah, I found this movie excruciating in like all the the right ways, you know, because it it but it does things that I didn't even expect it to do on a horror level. Like the the imagery at the end when you get the the final boss version of the deadite and it's just I, I don't know how they I don't know how they did that. But yeah, the the blending of, you know, your practical effects and, you know, just it was just, you know, seamless how it all fit together and yeah it fucked me up and like like seeing children get brutalized in this way so like so unforgivingly like the eyeball into the mouth like you know, yeah. like 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 it was still playful even when it was killing kids 
but it didn't turn me off, you know, which is, you know, not something any other movie I've seen could do, you know, because, yeah, like the, the children die in this trigger warning, you know, like young children. But the, the one you care about, the, the, the blonde eyed beauty. Well, I won't spoil what happens with her, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, the, this this movie had power that that opening like sequence, that little like that cold open. And then when the titles came up, that was fucking awesome. Like, uh, I want yeah. that framed on my wall someday. Like, like that is, that was gorgeous. Like, and, and a lot of, and I don't know, there's some things were contrived, no doubt. It's a horror movie, but it never, ever offended me. And I would not be disappointed if, you know, he got, at, you know, if he got another run at making another one. Like, I don't, I don't know how he is the guy that knows how to, how, how to, to do a Sam Raimi you know, justice in this way, but I don't even think Raimi could have made an Evil Dead movie this good today. So I don't know. That's my hot take. If I have one, yeah. I was thoroughly impressed with this. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I don't think Raimi is kind of in that headspace anymore. Um, he's more about like producing these movies now to give these sort of like new up and coming filmmakers a shot, and I really like that yeah. that idea. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you had kind of already alluded to it, the the intro scene. So this movie is like bookended by a uh, like an introductory scene and then sort of a final scene that tie together that don't really have much to do with the rest of the movie. And on on its face, I think that's sort of a cool idea that like the this entire movie is basically a prequel to that introductory scene. But I, I thought it was kind of a weird like unnecessary choice on a on a whole because um yeah i mean it didn't really tie into the movie in any way no. and, um the, i mean the titles were cool I, I did really like that that looked really awesome but the the thing that i thought was really odd about the that whole introductory scene and then transitioning into the actual movie was the the title card that came up that said like one day earlier because, that ruined the surprise it would have been yeah, so it, much nicer to not have that yeah, it felt it felt like just like a studio note where they're like, the audience is too dumb to understand what this is, so you need to put that in there. And so, because it had it not been there, then you would have kind of been like, oh, that was weird. I wonder what that was. And then towards the end of the movie, you know, that girl shows up again in the parking garage, and you're like, okay, okay, I get it now. But instead of doing that, the second that woman shows up at the end, you know exactly who what's, she is and what's going to happen what's to going her. On. And yeah, yeah. So it's like, I don't know. It was, it was a weird choice, but um, definitely something that seemed handed on down on high from the studio. But other than that, you know, my, my complaints with the film are, you know, pretty far in between. Um, you know, I think I've wrote in our, in our doc that there is some really weird, like Chekhov's guns. This is a movie. Full yeah. of Chekhov guns. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> anytime anytime you see the camera linger on something for more than like two seconds you know it's going to come back into play and i some of them worked for me and some of them didn't i thought some of the weird ones were like the making the the son a dj or like interested in djing just so they could have an excuse to have a, a turntable in the apartment and it's like it's like oh look at my look at my ten thousand dollar DJ setup while my mom lives in this <laughs> dilapidated building. It's it's just weird and yeah, um, but yeah. I mean, other than stuff like that, it was I really enjoyed this and yeah. It, I mean, it it gives you everything you want in an Evil Dead movie. You know, the gore and 
everything and did you have any like standout moments for you uh, of oh. like um go like lines of dialogue or gore or anything like that well it's you kind of you can kind of see it in the the trailer loop i'm running but it's from the the opening sequence when the cousin is checking on the other girl and she just like is playfully you know grabbing on her ponytail and i was like oh shit oh shit and then like the, then she gets scalped that yeah. like I, and then the line is who's the meat puppet now and it's just like jesus christ and then it was like i instantly was just like like that's the kind of like irreverent and like i don't know like what i love what, what scares me what genuinely scares me about the deadites in these movies is just how like gleefully like evil and like you know, and like sadistic you know, that they are like it mm. it is how the the chaos entities from warhammer or like the 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 monster from event horizon you know like you know, like that kind of thing where they're just like oh i'm gonna get i'm gonna get off so much when i tear you to pieces and take you apart you know like the that kind of thing like like it is so fucking scary when the mom also like first starts showing and she starts like saying all the fucked up shit you know that the deadites say and and the and even when like the projectile like movie vomit happens it is played so straight and it feels so real in in the in the movie that like i because unlike army of darkness where all that shit does happen you know you're it's heightened and you're just laughing at it you know because it's like it's it's goofy but the way that the actors like and all the actors in this are awesome the way that they would react to everything i don't know everything just landed perfectly for me and uh, like yeah. like this is a this is a solid fresh tomato for me if, if you know that i'm throwing their way if i have one to throw yeah yeah same i mean yeah just pitch perfect all the way through and you know my personal favorite I, there's been a lot of talk about the cheese grater scene yeah it's like got it's gotten and that was okay i mean it, it was it was a little like wince inducing but i i personally had more trouble with the girl eating the, the glass, glass and then, and then the showing the it thing. in her throat and um but yeah and then the i mean the deadite dialogue is so good in this movie like the you know open the door like you open your legs you groupy slut and like and the um and then when all the deadites are in the hallway and they're all they're all chanting dead by dawn dead by dawn that's just so so perfect and um they you know there wasn't a line of deadite dialogue in this film that i thought was like misplaced or you know sometimes or even like cringy you know they yeah. sometimes they it, they totally could be it's totally possible for something like that to come across as you know just like goofy and odd and Forced. it was all really really great yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, shout out to, uh, I mean, the whole cast, but Alyssa Sutherland, who played the mom, just really, really great. She, you know, just all the stuff she's doing with her body and her, like, mannerisms and... The smile yeah, and, just, and, like, the rage that she could have in her eyes. Yeah. It, it just a, incredible. And, yeah, just her... And the, and the way she did all those lines, you know, delivered those. And another really, really great one, too, was... Um, when she called her kids like titty sucking monsters yes. or, or parasites, Parasite. titty sucking parasites. Yeah. That was, that was incredible. And yeah, really, really, I really, really enjoyed it. And you know, there are parts in this movie where I, I want to shout out this one in, sort of subversion of expectations in particular that I enjoyed where 
the it's right after the the daughter gets the like doll head spear through her head <laughs> yeah and they foreshadowed they, that shit you know yeah, like, they, they did foreshadow that yeah but there's that there's that shot you know they they she dies or she dies and then they do a shot where you know you think she is going to you know come back alive and disappear off somewhere but then when the camera pans over to the bed she's on the instead of her being gone it's she's wrapped up in a sheet because the the sun was smart enough to like put her in a sheet and you know like tie her up and I just thought that was really good because they were totally playing with expectations there because in any other horror movie, the camera would have panned over and the daughter would have been gone and they, yeah. they wouldn't have known where she was. And so I really, really like that. And, um, you know, it's just stuff like that, that really keeps it fresh. And all the way to the end, it escalated, you know, just the right way. And even like the elevator full of blood, like when that started happening, I was like, oh, fuck, like, how are they going to get out of this? And then uh, what I appreciated was the fact that they admitted that gravity still existed. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> oh, eventually, yeah. <laughs> eventually that thing won't be able to hold all that like literal gallons of blood that are just appearing in the elevator. So, yeah, there was logic and there was coherence to it. And like I alluded to before, the, the final form, the giant like thing monster, rat the rat king, that's a good word for yeah. it. That thing was amazing and mm -hmm. iconic. I would ev even dare to say, like, I'm gonna rem I'm gonna remember this movie, and I did not think I was going to, but from the moment I saw the trailer, I was I was willing to be interested and excited about it. But this could easily be in my top ten for the year when when we get right down to yeah. it. This was so good, enthusiastic, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that being the case too. And yeah, I mean, just to yeah call out the ending too, when things get really crazy and, you know, they start putting things in the wood chipper and um, yeah, that was, that was really well done, you know, at the end when it's just the head left and, you know, she finally decides, you know, oh, there's nothing left of my sister and just kicks the head into the, the wood chipper. Just really, really great, really well done. I mean, it, I don't think this movie got as crazy as the 2013 one. Have you seen that one by chance? Yeah, quite a few times yeah, okay. actually. And and that's what was, I found shocking was that like when it was over, you know, even though I, I still was like, wait, is that all? Because the way that people talked about this, the way critics talked about this, you would think that this movie like did things that you would never want to see or never thought you would see, you know, that it was shocking and, in, in ways that, you know, the, that these, I don't know, they just oversold it into a degree or, or their sensibilities. I don't know. I feel like I question what some of these critics have seen. You know what I mean? If this was yeah. the, the, the one that sets you off. Yeah, same. I mean, it's, it's really not like, it doesn't get nearly to the level as the 2013 one, but it's a different beast. This one is, this one is more akin to the spirit of what a evil dead movie should be. And so that's why I think it's more successful than that one. Even though I do, I do really love that one too. The 2013 one for I its own too. reasons, yeah. but, um, but yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't get, it doesn't, you know, it's not that rel relevatory as people would lead you to believe. It's just a very well done horror film. It is. And if you believe hard enough, you could believe that this high rise is the same one that uh, Ryan Gosling's character in drive lives in. <laughs> You know, like that, that'd be kind of that. Hey, that's an idea, Hollywood, you know, just have a central location and then just put a bunch of different movie characters <laughs> in it for a guest starring you know, thing. 
I don't know. It's just cameos. That's all that Hollywood has become. Yeah. Um, before we yeah, um, before we move, move on this, I, I do want to ask you. You know, just as far as the future is concerned, the movie is you know defying expectations. I think last I checked before we started today, it was at about twenty three million. Um, and they're already talking about, you know, they're, they're putting Bruce Campbell out in the wild to promote this, even though he's just an executive producer. And he's saying that, you know, Rami's writing the evil dead Bible right now. And he wants, you know, evil dead films every two to three years. And so I don't know what, what do you make of that? Would you welcome that? Do you think that that should be the thing or I think, I don't know. I think what makes this movie so powerful is that you let some so you gave some room to breathe i know that they did that ash versus the evil dead show but i didn't watch it so i don't have a frame of reference Same. so for me i, I just have the, the fady alvarez movie and then i have this one and there's a decade in between them and they and they both are worthy and distinct and they aren't diminished by any bullshit in between and if we're getting i don't know we, we run the risk of there being a dog you know in the mix every two to three years and I don't know if if that's such a good idea. Ultimately, I would welcome more. Don't get me wrong, but I just hope that they tune that frequency a little bit or just work really fucking hard, you know, with you know, to make sure that that Bible is up to snuff or we're fucked because being being Marvel is hard. Obviously, look at how DC has been handled. And I just don't know if this, you know, humble little horror franchise deserves to be you know, you know, I don't know, put down the assembly line like this because eventually the sawdust will start getting mixed with the sausage. Yeah, same. I, I'm kind of in the same headspace where, you know, I guess maybe every three years, I don't think, we don't need to bi-annualize this. You know, this doesn't need to be the next Saw series where they're like, if it's Halloween, it's Saw, you know, those type of yeah. things. Because um, that got really yeah. old after a while. Yeah, it, it did. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that if you're going to do them every three years, let's do one-offs. Let's do a series of one-offs. You know, let's let's do these movies that are, you know, maybe in the same universe, but different locations, different groups of characters, different deadites. And let's just do it that way because we don't need continuity in this. I know, like, that's probably exactly the opposite of a lot of evil dead fans want you know they want a 65 year old bruce campbell you know spouting one-liners and i just don't think that's what this series needs and no, so because he he had his that. cameo in this because allegedly on one of the records yeah. that the boy is playing you can hear bruce campbell go that's why it's called the necronomicon you know because he is a time displaced ash you know just you know slipping from one decade to another just having his adventures and that's all cool and all, but I don't need to see that, you know, like, and yeah. I, I think this worked so much better by ha from having no connective tissue beyond that. And that was something that only a, you know, eagle eared fan would have you know picked up on. And I only know because someone talked about it in an interview, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel pretty much the same. Yeah. Go out, go out and see it. This is, of the movies we're talking about this week, this is the one to go see in theaters, and we'll tell you why right now. <laughs> Good God. Because I did go see a little film from, you know, the, the cinematic master known as Ari Aster. It was called Bo is Afraid. 
based on his short film Bo from his time at the American Film Institute. He spent a lot of time honing this thing and crafting this thing into a feature film from that initial concept. You should, it, if you're going to see Bo is Afraid, I recommend watching the original short film. It, it makes it makes sense because that initial germ, only like half of it is really relevant to the film, the feature film he ended up making starring Joaquin Phoenix with a, an array of actors from like Amy Ryan to Parker Posey, you know, to, to Nathan Lane. Even Patti LuPone shows up, and that's exciting if you're, you're a Broadway fan. But this movie is incomprehensible, even though I'm about to describe how it is almost too easy to understand. Um, there's just boundless vision here, obviously. It's undeniable, and it takes the audience. You, it makes you think you're at the brink of transcendence. You're about to have some epiphany, like something amazing is going to happen to your worldview very soon. And then instead, your head just gets shoved up Ari Aster's ass so he could fart even more directly, you know, into your respiratory system and, in, you know, eventually into your brain. Because, like, this movie's destined to divide, you know, like, it's going to stand apart from anything Aster made before it. It's going to you know stand apart from anything he makes after, because I don't think he's going to be allowed to go as ham as he does here, because he goes a little too hard in the paint, if you know what I mean. Um, that said an act of cinematic bravery that I will salute, but it, you know, it, 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 why do we need this? I know that everything is sterile and homogenous. I know that like everything is lame and it sucks and that we, I should champion experimentation and someone being bold and crazy, you know, for once and like doing so egregiously, you know, like to, to an extent that no one should ever be allowed to do again. Like a two four is drunk on power. Like they are about to introduce like an app, that you can like be a, a member of so you can mainline their product, you know, even deeper into yourself. But if this is what they're making, I question it because at its core. Yeah. Bo is afraid is a very obvious exploration of a very anxious and disordered mind. And there's a lot about what this thing is exploring that is relatable, but does this make a good movie? Not really. It's not a narrative. This is just a nightmare. A drawn out, you know, you know, you know, bad night at home after you ate too much right before you went to bed and watched Evil Dead Rise. You go to sleep with all of your, you know, fucked up shit rattling around in your brain. And if you're Ari Aster, this is what you wake up and poop out onto the page. But did we need to know about his mommy issues? Did we have to be exposed to the concept of the penis monster that shows up at the end of this thing? I don't know if we did, you know, like, like Roger Ebert famously said about the usual suspects to the extent that I can understand. I did not care. I desperately wanted to care about this movie and it was easy to understand, but this is not an easy film to like, and it's almost impossible for me to love it personally in its totality, but I can respect it. There was a lot of craft and you know technical skill that went into this. The actors are acting their heart out. But when it's just Joaquin Phoenix basically being catatonic and running for three hours, you got to give me something more to walk out of the theater with. And this movie left me with very little other than the question, why? And with yeah. that, I'll ask you, where were you, where did you where were you at when you walked out of this movie? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit on the same track. Um, yeah, I mean, you're sitting in on Ari Aster's therapy sessions 
I think between this Hereditary and his short film Munchausen, he's got some like major, major mommy issues. And this is such a con confounding film. And some people are going to hate this movie and some people are going to praise this movie for the exact same reason. Yes. And, yeah. you know, looking at it through a populist lens, the movie has almost none of the hallmarks of what is generally accepted as a good film. It's awfully paced. It has paper thin characters that just appear and disappear from the film at the drop of a hat. The modicum of story that it does have just like drops out of the movie for entire like half hour chunks and then just like comes back. Um, and it's criminally overly long. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you know, it's inventive, it's original, it's full of symbolism that's begging to be poured over and that plenty of people probably will pour over it. And I don't know, it just comes down to like, what it comes down to at the end of the day is what, which of these things are important to you at the end of the day of a film and how do you weigh them against the other things? And for me personally, I just don't think it's a very good movie. It's a good exercise. Um, it's interesting, but it doesn't make for a good movie. And I thought it was bad as a movie. <laughs> yeah, it, like, like you say, criminally overlong. You could have cut out an hour of 45 minutes out of this thing. And you probably would have had something that was more enjoyable to sit through. Because, yeah, like uh, I looked over at my, my, my fiance, Angie, she has... The, the shot of Danny smiling crazily at the end of Midsummer, tattooed on her leg. And I looked over at her and she was just fucking stone faced that whole fucking movie. And when we got to the car, <laughs> she was just pissed off at Ari Aster for making the movie that he had made. Because, yeah, like there, there's parts of it that she could have would have completely cut out, like all the shit in the woods you know, which I, I don't disagree. That's the kind of, that's the shit I would get rid of too. Cause it, I don't know, this movie reminded me a lot of exercises like enter the void. Um, uh, I'm thinking of ending things, just these esoteric inscrutable and dense pieces of art that are not movies that I would recommend to people, you know, unless they just want the experience because the experience of this is a, is astounding but you're mad about it afterwards you're like <laughs> god damn it why the 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 why is because and uh, that's and that's kind of what it all you know kind of hinges on but that said there was you know parts of this that i found really effective like the the first sequence with him and his apartment i loved yeah. the idea that the world that we weren't really seeing the world for how it was we were seeing it for how his neurosis allowed him to see it but then it I'm not sure. I don't know. Someone more astute will dig into this and figure out exactly when it becomes a dream. But I don't know. Like, and maybe I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. Because is anything we're seeing real, or is all of this just a nightmare? Yeah, I don't know. I guess. Um, see, that that's the thing is, I'm I'm wondering what. It's kind of impossible to know even what questions you should be asking for this film because. It almost seems as if Aster is he's trying to like have it both ways where he is like he's trying to like you don't know if he's parodying 
things and you don't know if he's being or if he's being serious about them. That's the thing. A yeah. lot of times. I mean, go back to his other movies. A lot of people call Midsummer and even Hereditary like black comedies because there are moments in them that are comedic. But it's, they're not like, ha-ha, I'm going to laugh out loud comedic. They're just kind of like a sort of think in your head, like, oh, that was kind of funny comedic. Or like, oh, that's kind of ironic. And it's the same way with this movie where it's like, does he want me to laugh at that? <laughs> or like, or is he, you know, is he being serious with, with, with me now? And it's like, it, it's hard to even know what questions you should ask. And that's one of them, you know, if, because at the end of the day, who cares if it's real or not? Because okay, fair. I don't know, you know, you know what I mean? Like um would that even yeah, guess, would that make it more enjoyable i don't know probably yeah. not there's which is why like no question is really worth asking you know because it, it's it's like wh why is there a giant spider at the end of enemy because you know it's like you, know, <laughs> like you, you shouldn't like you, you're you're losing the game by asking the question in the first place you should just like well like, I, that's why i think feeling is more important than meaning when it comes to watching movies like this how did watching this make you feel yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that because I was also going to bring up the first sort of sequence um, because I guess we could probably talk about each one of these on its own, but there's there's four sort of sequences in this movie. And the first one is by far the best, in my opinion, because it's the most, it, it's sort of that heightened reality. And when I was watching this first sequence, you know, set in and, in and around his apartment, I was in, I was I was like, okay, this heightened reality, this this could be awesome. You know, he's gonna go on a you know an adventure to get to his mom's house, and this is gonna it's gonna be like this the whole yeah, time. It's just gonna, gonna, gonna be gonna this be awesome. full bore odyssey into the unknown, and it's gonna be exciting yeah. and thrilling. Oh God, uh -huh. <laughs> you know. And so, and I was also like, you know, I was sort of invested for that first part too because there was a portion of that first part that was threatening to really get a little too real for me because um, when he was, you know, on the phone with his mom, as somebody who came, who comes from a very similar background, uh, meaning my mom was a single mother and I now live in a city that is about three and a half hours away from her. I've had that exact same conversation on the phone with my mom before. So I was, you know, the, sort of the guilt tripping of and of not coming to visit and stuff like that and so it's like you know this movie at a certain point was like okay you know you're really getting under my skin and then it's just like nothing after that i'm just like nope it's all gone you know i don't care anymore you know immediately after that first section i i mean i was i was a little bit into the second section i think my sort of interest in the movie just completely nosedived during that like paint scene where oh the, 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 the girl daughter... chugs paint and kills herself yeah, I, and 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 they're just yelling at each other about you know painting the room and i was that was sort of my moment my sort of turnaround moment in the movie where i was like oh god i do not like this where this is going and and then it was just kind of a downhill from there type of thing yeah because yeah, I have to I have to stop myself from trying to make sense of the plot, quote unquote, of this movie, because yeah, the the parts of the movie we were enjoying is completely derailed by the arrival of Amy Ryan running into him with a vehicle, and then all of a sudden we're in a house. Nathan Lane is like a a weird surgeon husband, and they 
and they keep on i don't know the 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 heightened reality is maintained because they mention that their son has you know died in you know overseas fighting in venezuela in caracas you know which is a place that we have never fought in you know but is you know but but i don't know it's like a, a commentary on the war on terror basically or like rather the iraq invasion because like that kind of like gold star families of that generation oh my god forgive me you guys are kind of insufferable i know i'm gonna get canceled <laughs> for this in the future but like I, I don't mean this very sincerely but like that's yeah he's making fun of that and it's like why are you doing that ari why are you making fun of broken poor families that experienced something traumatic you know what i mean mm -hmm. but that's also when the movie completely derails it loses all of its momentum and then it's just a, a giant slow walk about the dark pit you know pits of this man's brain as we explore all of his unresolved issues you know all of the the things from his past that have fucked him up but if you read the wiki page for this you have to take some of these revelations <laughs> literally because they, they there's if, if, yeah because because after that he winds up in a field not a field a forest with a bunch of like traveling orphaned performers and then this weird guy shows up and he and that is literally what his name in the credits is he is like strange man and he walks up to Bo and he's like either either he is Bo's father or he know Bo's father you know it's you know, they, i don't know the comment is just weird and it's, i think he says that he knew him knew him and then, yeah. he's, and then he's still alive i think i think that's that, that's, that's what, he, that's says, what yeah. he says but then it's never brought up again never explored again it's just it just shows up and then it's gone because he i don't know that i mean i have all of my questions that i like is it because of the weird drugs that he's been given like like why is he suddenly in an animated dream sequence like why is any of this happening <laughs> And then, like, that whole part with, like, his sons where it just holds on him for, like, where he's embracing his, like, his sons for, like, six minutes long. And they're just like, oh, my God. La, la, la. I, like, that's when I was like, what the fuck is going on? And that's what, like, <laughs> around the time when, like, Angie told me she was about ready to leave. Which brings <laughs> me to our next, like, when did your first walkout happen? Oh, yeah. It was definitely during the, um the second section during the i i think it might have been during the the paint scene or it could have been during like the like forcing him to do drugs scene yeah but um yeah it, it was interesting because i had about i had a pretty good amount of people in my theater i would say probably about 20 or so and i think about half of them walked out Holy but shit. it was it was almost like a it was like a test of endurance because it it, it was just like two people at a time like two people would walk out and then 15 minutes later, two more people would walk out and then 20 minutes later, two more people. So it was like, who could make it the longest? Oh no. You know? Jesus Christ. See, I was so absorbed in watching this movie that I didn't keep, I didn't pay attention. I sat in the way back. So I would have been able to see, but <laughs> I think everyone in my theater stayed, but I like, I don't want, we won't, I guess, spoil the ending quite yet, but when the lights came up and like and we that was our signal that the movie was actually over yeah. like that's the quietest theater i've ever been in in my life like nobody coughed nobody like talked no one grumbled everyone just got up and left and the first thing anybody said was me to the theater employees and i was just like 
Ari Aster is a fucked up dude. And then the guy was like, oh, is this movie weird? He was like, I wanted to see it. And I was like, you could do that. And then I just kept on walking. <laughs> and then I took a piss because I had drank uh, like an entire gallon of Code Red. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was pretty similar in mine too. Um, yeah, nobody really moved for a, a second or like a minute or two after the lights came up. It was just a very somber atmosphere and very strange, but... Yeah, I want to go back to the... You were talking before about the third part of the film. And, yeah. You know, unlike the... I can't really make heads or tails of the second part with uh, Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane. Like, other than the commentary that you were talking about, about, you know, the military family, I have no idea what that second section meant yeah. in, the, in the frame of reference to Bo as a character. But this but, third section, I think, is very clearly showing him the life that he could have had okay. had he not been affected by all of his like abnormalities and okay. showing him the life you know the life he could have lived um essentially without his mom um because uh we'll talk about it once we get to the fourth part but essentially his mom is the root of all of his problems i think is what the the ending implies because the one of the production names like the fake names that they used for this movie while they were making it was mona's choice and that's the name of the, the, the his mother's character and yeah the the only reason nathan lane and amy ryan are there is because you eventually find out they are the employees of his mother yeah that's right because yeah. like did you see them in the picture, the picture? i didn't yep. see them i all i could see was parker posey Mm-hmm. who I, I i just want to salute you madam thank you i don't for you know still giving us the goods and you know the ripeness of your age <laughs> unless that was a body double i would forgive you but that like that was oh, chef's kiss magnificent she has back dimples for crying out loud <laughs> but to get to there he has to endure yeah like this like psychological like ego death for a man who has no ego you know, because he's just getting his soul crushed. You know, he's getting this euphoria of like, you know, getting a glimpse of what could be. And then it all just gets you know shit on again. And before you know it, he's everyone's getting shot, you know, and like the, and that weird veteran who has like machine guns and a tracking devices after him. And it's you know shortly thereafter that he you know, eventually winds up at his at like the, his mother's, uh, what do they call those things? The Shiva. Her Shiva is getting, you know, the catering is going home. It's all over. And he's just walking around her empty house and uh, the headless corpse in the casket. That is the one moment I laughed out loud at. And I was the only person to do it, which reinforced for me that it was very inappropriate for me to do so. <laughs> It's a callback too to uh, Hereditary. There's there's a couple of moments like that. There's also the um, uh, callback to Midsummer when uh, the lawyer drops to his death on that rock at the very end. Yep, yep. God damn. And see, and that's where the like, and then like, and once the Mona shows like the sex scene happens, which is the most cringe-inducing thing I've ever seen, but probably the most realistic orgasm, male orgasm you've ever seen on screen. <laughs> Just in the way that it was acted. I don't know. Like that whole part was so fucking weird. And like it 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 just seemed like it was in a totally different movie, you know, from all the other strangeness we had been getting. 
but did, like so did she die because the dick was so good or did she die because he came like so much that like it came out her eyeballs you know okay here's how i kind of interpreted it was so all those people what you know as you said already all we come to find out that all of these people that have been sort of put in Bo's way work for the mother and i think this movie is it's very very like greek poet greek poetry greek playwright in that um you know like the odyssey or oedipus rex where like a greek god bo's mother does not like the way in which he honors her or he is honoring her he's he's not honoring her with his presence he's not honoring her by coming to see her and so the way that i sort of un understood it is that she puts she put all of these obstructions in his path in order to get to her so that you know in spite of all these obstructions when he finally got to her you know he 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 was supposed to honor her and I just kind of instead I took, he I defiles her bed with a common yeah, whore. Yeah, and and the way that I kind of took it was, I mean, going back to the Greek god thing, you know, she she is their boss. She is all these people's boss at this wow. company that she started. But in a very you know godlike way, she has the power to literally stop a person, pause a person, almost as if they are like. Um, you know a a movie you know she can pause them and that's what she did to parker posey's character the mom literally presses pause on like her life and then the servants come and like drag her out and so that's kind of i mean that's kind of how i saw everything is that wow bo's mother is this this sort of greek god that you know is just pissed about the ways in which he chooses to worship her essentially and um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I was at. I think you cracked the nut. But... I, I, I think if the, if someone's going to do like an academic take of this movie, if it, if it doesn't include that, I, I think they're you know, missing what is in the essence of it. Cause that's essentially what he, I think you're right. A hundred percent on that. It's the only thing that makes sense because she's a vengeful God and, and Greek mm -hmm. gods are, are, are pricks. So it makes complete sense to me because this movie kind of it also reminded me a lot of The Wall, you know, the, not only the concept album itself, but the movie that was made out of it. There's lots of Oedipal themes and a trial at the end, of course, you know, which ends with the protagonist, you know, being killed. But unlike The Wall, there is no, you know, it's like you know, renewal of the cycle, you know, because, you know, as that as that was an album, it was meant to loop in, infinitely like a Mobius strip or something. But since this is a movie, we, we get the, the, that trial sequence. We like the, the audience and the amphitheater around him, the light that's shining a light on him almost in like, it's completely opposite of the actual projector in the theater. You see this movie in. So that symbolism couldn't be more fucking obvious that we, the audience are watching this, the, him be executed in the same way that the audience in the movie are they, that we are them, they are us. And at the end, when they're just quietly milling out, you know, as the water laps, you know, on the sunken boat, that was fucking haunting. But at, I was at the same yeah. time, I was just like, what the fuck, Ari, what did I do to you? 
What did I do to you that you're going to condemn me for coming to your fucking movie about your fucking bullshit and try and like shame me for it? I don't think so, buddy. But that's what he did. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I guess if you're to take anything from that ending, it's basically it was all for naught. And everything that Bo thought, you know, he could overcome and that he wasn't guilty of, he actually is guilty of it. And he cannot overcome it. No. And yeah, you're just, he's fucked. And, and so it's like all, everything for not. And yeah, it's just, ah, oh man, just so frustrating. And yeah, I think you were right. You're right about the, 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 the light, the spotlight and the people filing out because that's, that's exactly <laughs> what that was. And so, yeah, I think, I think we cracked the case. <laughs> I think we I did. Mean, again, like, like you said, this is, it's it really is easy to understand what's going on here but just the way that it's all structured is so like it's like purposefully obtuse and it's kind of annoying in that way yeah because yeah if you're gonna you know circle jerk with ari you know and smell his farts with him yeah you'll get the most that you can out of this movie but is it worth it to agonize over what all this bullshit means i don't think it you know, it is <laughs> i think at it's you know simple the the simplest reading on it is the best one i like the idea of this just being a greek tragedy mm-hmm. but it's the greek tragedy that every little jewish boy gets to live with apparently because i don't know like and, and, and i know that you identified with certain aspects of it and i certainly did too but like once it really started getting into the the whole like your dad died you know mass you know, like coming in me making you you know like and that's why his balls are so like prominently swollen throughout the movie that's when I'm just like hold what wh- why are we talking about this Ari like what's going on buddy come on talk to me here Let- give me a lifeline but there's no lifeline because the end of the movie is him just going like no you drown you drown with me and he like drags you down into the depths. You know, so like you, there's no oxygen for you as an audience member when it's all over. But I, for a little bit there, I was happy for Bo when that's when when he was coming. I was happy <laughs> when I was like, yeah, buddy, he, he did it. He didn't die. You know, but then yeah, the movie just keeps fucking going. But and that's something that like, I don't know, when, it, when you think about a movie that has that's really, really long or has a convoluted narrative what serves it best is to have really, really well done sequences. That's why Pulp Fiction works, mm-hmm. even though it broke all the rules. It was just that every mm-hmm. single chunk of it was so effective. And that's what holds this movie back. That There's only like only one out of eight really lands perfectly. And all the others just trip over themselves. And is this going to derail his career or is this just going to solidify his greatness? Yeah, well, I think I like how you termed it in our in our Google Doc for the show. You know, what the fuck does he do next? Because here's the thing is I you were nice enough to link all of his short films in uh, a Internet archive. And so I actually watched all of those um, in the lead up to this episode. And the thing that strikes me about Ari Aster at this point is I think that he was probably always this guy. This is always the filmmaker that he was. Because if you look at his short films, they have more in common with this movie than they do either Hereditary or Midsummer. And to me, you know, knowing that now, it's like, 
I feel as if Hereditary and Midsummer were almost like him on the leash. You know, him with him with uh, producers and studio financiers looking over his shoulder constantly, telling him to change stuff, telling him to cut stuff. And this is like him unleashed. And so I think this is the guy he always was. And this is what we're going to get from him going forward, I think. No, there's a quote. Because it's not even the because those people were, were certainly there the the studio heads and the producers, but I found a quote where, you know, Astor basically conceded that making Hereditary instead of Bo because that script has been around since like 2014, like mm-hmm. he 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 went the direction he did. He he says in a like out of cynicism, like he just knew it would be easier to make a horror movie, so he wrote one. You know, so even like mm. the, from the genesis of those projects, it was him going, no, I can't make the wackadoo crazy shit I would love to do. So this is what I'll do instead. It, it, I think like, I don't know what the expression is, but it's like where like there's like a where somebody like doesn't reveal themselves completely and then they've roped you in. So, yeah, he he, he sucked us all in with his really elevated and thoughtful rug, you know, pull. rug pull he's rug pulled his old audience and now he's like helicoptering his dick around in front of us going Woo, look at me here i am ari Esther, it's me and you're either traumatized by it or you're like hell yeah it's ari yes but there, yeah there's no in between it's like either you're into it or you're not and hopefully i don't know another person i thought of was paul thomas anderson who mm. you know had some you know pretty straightforward debut well-respected a way more successful follow-up that you know broadened his appeal and then he was given the keys to the kingdom and the ability to be above any influence and then he mm-hmm. made the movie that is his probably his most divisive magnolia is the one of his, the one paul thomas anderson yeah. movie that is the hardest to like for most people but it i i love that movie i've seen it as many times as i've seen boogie nights or the master and like an inherent vice. I like, I, but I am not going to come back to this one because there's really nothing no. for me to come back to. That's the conclusion ultimately that I think everyone in the theater I saw it with came back to. It, <laughs> it was just like, like it's like men. Like I remember men, that movie yeah, from last yep. year. That That's another one of these like artsy experiences that really kind of just leave you going like, what, why, like in uns- like in being unsettled, I think is the point. It's like, how did the movie make you feel? More important than, like, did it change your your worldview? But if a movie makes you understand yourself better, then it's probably done its job as a work of art. But this is not gonna sell out a theater, and it's not gonna make back the forty million dollars that a twenty four put into it. But they don't give a shit about that. This was about maintaining their brand. You know, continuing to just let their freak flag fly because traditional Hollywood would have never greenlit this thing. There's a reason why, you know, he says it was out of cynicism, but it, it's because it was destined to be. The, this is the thing that he had to hold to his chest and wait until the checks were all signed and no one could tell him no anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I feel the same. This is a movie that I'm glad that I saw exactly one time. And it will remain that way. I, I don't see myself ever revisiting this. And I mean, there's a reason why, you know, when you think back on it, there was that f- initial screening of this movie where they got a bunch of people together at the Alamo Draft House who thought they were going to go see Midsummer, and then they surprised them with this movie. On April 1st. Like, 
Yeah, on, on April 1st, and that was the first screening of this movie, and now you know exactly why they did that, because, you know, the people that are gonna love this movie are gonna love this movie, you know, because they're, like, the Aster, like, diehards, and, um, yeah, I just, I don't, I just don't see myself revisiting it. it it's already revealed all of its secrets. It's really not that complicated, yeah. I really don't think, and, and, um, it's this isn't David Lynch, slog. you know, it, it's not yeah. fun even, you know, like David Lynch is fun. Like I, I love a good surreal head trip just like anybody else, but you know, even, you know, you know, like shit, like enter the void. Is it like, is like a, a, a like a virtuoso cinematic experience from beginning to end, even though it's repulsive and ultimately pointless too. I, I'd much rather watch enter the void than watch this. But I think that's because Enter the Void is half as long. Yeah. <laughs> and we come back to how fucking long this movie is. Two hours, 59 minutes. Like, wh like why didn't he just give himself that extra minute? You're like, why not? What did he leave on the cutting room floor? Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet there's plenty. But yes, definitely agree. And yeah, we will. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this performs, because like you had mentioned it, it uh i think it did about three million this entire weekend and that's when it went wide this weekend and so it's it's definitely gonna bomb but i guess at the end of the day it's all about you know a24 keeping their their sort of shiny veneer for all of the hipsters out there and whatnot but um yeah, yeah i guess i'll just kind of leave it there it's it's for the street cred but yeah if you're if you're an ari aster fan if you love Midsummer, if you love Hereditary, do yourself a favor. Watch this man's short films first, because like you mm -hmm. pointed out, yeah. th that is the real Ari Aster. And this movie will show you the real, real Ari Aster. And if you're OK with that, great. That's good. We don't like we're not opposed to that, but be sure to watch. The, there's something strange about the Johnsons, you know, and and the original version of Bo. You know, that was starring the the late Billy Mayo. He was an actor that, for some reason, you know, Astor really liked working with, and uh, yeah, the he stands out quite a bit in those. But yeah, that's uh, all we really got to say about Bo is Afraid. Be very careful. Be very discerning, or you you might as well just you know, waste your money and walk out of the theater. At least you got popcorn. What's your mentionable for this week? Yeah. So real quick, I um. We had a couple, a two-day stretch here in the Minneapolis area where we had 80-degree days, and you then we were plunged. Bastards. <laughs> we were plunged back into the cold, harsh reality of spring. After that, but I decided to take advantage of it. Got some last-minute tickets to a Minnesota Twins game, the local professional baseball team, and yeah, this is very fun. I mean, I guess my mentionable is just go to a baseball game if you can, because whether you like baseball or not. I don't know anything about baseball and I really enjoyed myself, you know, just taking in the sights and uh, taking in the food and the game itself. Um, do you know about like the new pitch clock rule? Yeah. I'm familiar with that yeah. because it actually, yeah. it, they, they, it, the pitcher, the players hate it, but the fans love it. And as I understand it, they have, are now serving beer past the seventh inning and yes, that's, a, are, and yeah. that's scandalous. <laughs> Yeah, it was awesome because it made the game like a little over two hours and it was incredible because there's, you know, there's very little downtime now. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of the thing that harms baseball games for the spectator um, sometimes. And I personally loved it. And 
um yeah it was just really really nice to to go see this i mean go to a professional game if you're lucky enough to be around a professional team or go to a uh um farm league team you know they yeah. got like the red hawks and and um, my nuts got the hot league. tots rolling out their 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 mascot is literally a flaming tater tot and okay, nice that's awesome and, and like i and my mascot at my high school growing up are at the mott regent high school was the wildfire but our mascot was a a flaming tater tot and that's what we called him so it's i think it's kind of hilarious that that's what the that the they're just the local college team like there so it's like players who aren't good enough to like be on like the the, the starter their homework for the summer is to go play for free for one of these teams like this is what they're doing for the summer and uh, and they get boarded and it's 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 nothing special but like i used to shoot run the camera for those things and it was so fun to to do that kind of thing but baseball in general you've got cold beer you, you eat some food that's not good for you and you get some sun like what's not to love i agree with you completely i was in fargo this weekend and my mentionable is basically what i did this weekend in fargo angie has a deep appreciation for uh author and crematorium you know death you know like new death advocate um uh caitlin doty and north dakota humanities they have this event called the the brave talks there was a, a lady from dunseith who was a big booster of the humanities and it's named after her and i'm blanking on her name but it's held like it's held once a year and they get a speaker to go up and they have a guided conversation and I don't know if you've ever been to something like that, but you just sit at a table and like your big celebrity host gets up top and they do a little spiel. And then they invite you at the table to talk amongst yourselves about something. And in her talk, I don't know if you are you familiar with like what she does, like or her books? You know, I wasn't before this week, but it's really it's really weird. Just by complete coincidence, this woman was on one of the local newscasts here talking about um, this company that does like a new form of cremation. Yeah, the the, so, the hydrolysis method. Yeah, yeah, and and that's kind of what like her whole deal is. You know, she's trying to find better. Like her question that we had to ask ourselves was, who gets to decide what happens to your body? Do you get to decide what happens with your body after you die? So like, I know you love six feet under. Yeah, and and so like I think a lot of what was going on there was a lot maybe what that show explored too, you know, to a degree. But just like like all these other options should be available technically, but it's like you know, is it, are we are we cool with you know just being you know buried in a vault and you know you know being reduced to ash? What about you know the people in Malaysia who dig up their relatives and like you know mummify them and then dress them up and hang around in the house with them for years? Cause that's a normal thing for those people, you know, and, and what are you comfortable with? Cause those, like those people maybe didn't want that to happen to them, but culturally it can be done in Bowman, North Dakota, Southwestern quarter, a guy was arrested for digging up a grave, which is a classy felony. And, okay. and, but, but a package did that is doing anything with a body be beyond just be you know, burying and cremation. So like the North Dakota Catholic conference is opposed to the, the hydrolysis method. They're opposed to human composting, which is also really cool. Cause you get turned into a yard of soil 
that can, that can be incorporated into like a garden or used to plant a tree. So it was illuminating. It was really, really interesting, actually, even though I knew for a fact I was the only person in that room who wasn't a card carrying member of some political party, you know, like it, it still was welcoming and, and inviting, but it's the first time I'd seen a mask out in public in some time, but we kept on going in our weekend and we also went to burn bombs for breakfast on the recommendation of Lane Johnson. Shout out to you, Lane in Fargo there. Because we had we, the bagels there. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever had them? Yeah. It's a really, really great place. Their breakfast, like their breakfast sandwiches are incredible. That, that, that maple bacon schmear is wonderful, but the real treat was getting to commune with Eric Broadshow <laughs> at the worst and I got to hear from him. For, I hadn't watched the episode yet, but Real to Real did a uh, an episode about artificial intelligence. The Fargonauts boys did a Real to Real about it. And God, Broadshow hates that fucking movie. But I'll I'll link it in the <laughs> description so you can hear it from the horse's mouth. But it was wonderful getting to see that dude again. There he is holding the the legendary hamburger. She is a cat. <laughs> What's your pick of the week? Gosh, well, I mean, I think it's pretty easy. Um, I would say, you know, Evil Dead Rise, because, you know, maybe I, I don't think this is something that we mentioned while we were doing our Bo is Afraid uh, review, but Bo is Afraid is an impossible movie to recommend somebody. So I'm not going to recommend it to anyone. <laughs> I'm just going to say, go see Evil Dead Rise. I will echo that completely for the same reason. Like Lee Cronin did an excellent, excellent job. I was very impressed and I feel like anybody, even my mom, even though she probably wouldn't be able to handle five minutes of this movie would at least get more out of it than a second. Bo is afraid, but that is our pick of the week. My puppy boy over here really has got to go pee. I apologize for his barking, but we are theater and street and we will be back next week where we will be taking a break from theaters and movies and we're going to dig into citadel a series coming at us on amazon prime if you have that you can watch it with us and then we'll let you know if you, we think you should keep going and we will be but thank you very much matt and thank you for watching everybody i gotta go walk my dog see ya take care <laughs>